Now, I'm not sure if any of you have experienced this before. And if you do, this is not a time of confession. So, you know, just keep it to yourself, I guess. We'll, we'll do it that way. But I don't know if you've ever had a party and somebody crashed it. Maybe, um, maybe it could have been an unsupervised party in which your parents arrived on the scene. Like I said, confession later. Right? Maybe it wasn't so much a party. Maybe some of your uh, friends uh, were doing something uh, or you were doing something and your parents caught you red-handed. Maybe, like I said, it wasn't a party. Maybe it was just something else. All of a sudden, you're busted, right? One minute, you're having a good time scheming, laughing, everything's going really good, and then all of a sudden, uh-oh, right? Mom walks in, dad walks in, somebody walks in, authority. I don't know if you've been there, but today's scripture that we're going to be looking at is one of those moments. Looked like a good time was going on, then all of a sudden, there was an abrupt end to the party. You talk about somebody using all their resources to throw an incredible party, and we're going to look at in the scriptures here in Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to see how the king threw a party that was beyond believable. Matter of fact, if you remember from the book of Esther, King Xerxes, he had a 180-day party. Think about this, 180-day. That's half a year, right? Okay, 180-day party. This party made that one look like a trip to Chuck E. Cheese's, Okay. That's all I can basically say about that. So do me a favor, open up your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5, we're in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 5, past Psalms and Proverbs, past Ezekiel, and you get to Daniel chapter 5. And before we look at the details of what happened here, you have to ask your question, why would he be throwing this big party? Well, and you say, well, what does it matter if he throws a party? He's a king. But what you have to understand is at this point in time in history, this kingdom of his is surrounded by an enemy. The city is surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. The enemy is sitting at your gates waiting to destroy you. Judgment has come upon you, and you're just going to throw a party. It doesn't make much sense. If you remember Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. This huge statue on top was the head was golden, which was the Babylonian Empire. But then the, the chest and the arms was that of a different metal. It was a silver material. And that represented the Medo-Persia Empire. And in the dream... The king heard, he knew that his empire was going to be overtaken by this land or this other empire. But yet, what did he do in chapter 3? He built a statue all of gold, basically saying, nobody rules but me. And he was quickly humbled, wasn't he? In Daniel chapter 4, we saw it again. And the king came to finally know God and worship God. But now we're in Daniel chapter 5 and time has passed. And this new king, this new king's throwing a party even though the enemy is knocking at the door, ready to invade, ready to destroy. You know, looking at recent history, I found it interesting. Uh, you remember Saddam Hussein, uh, some of the younger generation here probably faintly heard of that name. The rest of you adults, you know who Saddam Hussein was, compared himself, I don't know if you knew this, he compared himself to the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He often put himself in the same shoes. 
Before the war in Iraq, we learned that Saddam had spent millions, if not billions of dollars, rebuilding the city of Babylon. It's located 50 miles, basically south of Baghdad. And in 1983, Saddam Hussein started rebuilding the top of his city, the city on top of the old ruins. And he inscribed in many of the bricks as he was building, he wrote this, this was built by Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. He had this extreme feeling of wanting to be like King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. March 19, 2003, Saddam Hussein, with his sons, invited a few of their close friends over to have dinner and throw a little party at an exclusive restaurant in downtown Baghdad. While they were eating, they didn't know that an invasion was basically imminent from the United States forces as they were amassing their among, uh, forces among the borders of Kuwait. Saddam and his sons were used to the good life. They were not going to let anything deter them from their partying, from their uh, expensive uh, wild living. And they weren't about to let the threat of the United States disrupt their party. Somebody tipped off... U.S. Special Forces, and the troops were already operating in that area, and President Bush called in an airstrike. Saddam's party was abruptly ended as his airstrike hit, and the cruise missiles slammed into the building and demolished it. Now, Saddam and his sons survived that, that attack in that moment, but it was the beginning of the end of a brutal dictator that had been living there and reigning there for over 30 years in Iraq. Why do we talk about that? Because it's so similar to what was happening in Babylon, in Daniel chapter 5. We rewind back 2,500 years. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've been talking about for about three, four weeks now, has died. He's gone. Three other kings rule for a short time, one after another, each of them being eliminated by the next king assassination, whatever it may be, they did not rule too long. Then came along King Nabodonius, who began to rule in 556 B.C. Now, his son Belshazzar began to co-reign with him. King Nabodonius moves on to a different area, and uh, Belshazzar, his son, takes over in Babylon. Now, it's 15 years later, and outside the walls of where King Belshazzar is in Babylon are the Medo-Persian army surrounding him. That sort of brings you up to where we are, up to speed with what I've been talking about. Now understand something about this city. And in studying and trying to figure out more and more about this city, measurements have varied. Some, some people have talked about this being this incredible fortified city, and then other people said it was fortified but not as big as you thought. I want to give you the minimum size of the city, knowing that people have argued and say it's much bigger than this. Measurements of the city, they say that the surrounding wall was 90 feet tall, okay, 22 feet wide. Think about how wide that is, 22 feet wide, surrounded by deep moats that extended 35 feet down into the ground. If there was if somebody maybe get on their bike or walk or whatever, ride around in your vehicle around the outskirts of the wall, it would take 17 miles to cover around the outside of that city as you would drive around. There were 250 guard towers, 
250 guard towers positioned throughout this wall, rooms for soldiers to sleep in, 100 gates, all armored with brass. If an enemy soldier managed to climb over the wall, he'd have to go a quarter of a mile of open space to even get to the city yet. So they were pretty much open then to get shot by an arrow or to be captured. There was enough food, warehouse for a 20-year siege, farmland within the wall to raise more if needed. The Euphrates River flowed under the wall to provide water. So no doubt about it, there was this calming sense to those in Babylon to feel like no matter what happens, we're going to be okay. It doesn't matter what army's out there, we're going to be okay. It's false sense of security. However, there'd be a time of anxiety that would soon arise that they were not prepared for. Due to the arrogance of those who lived inside, Belshazzar thought, let's just have a big party. Now, we've been dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar, chapters 1 through 3, and King Belshazzar is now here, we've mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1. It's been about 25 years in between chapters 4 and chapter 5. Keep in mind, Daniel... The book of Daniel was not written to give us a history lesson. The book of Daniel was written to remind us that God is sovereign among all people and among all things. That God rules. We just sang about worshiping a God, a king of all kings, and bowing before him. And as many men have come along and proclaimed to be kings, there is no king like the king of kings that we worship. And Daniel chapter, I'm sorry, the book of Daniel is written to remind us that man will be defeated and will be exiled. But God's people will be brought back and will be returned to safety. And they should trust him. Even when you think times are tough, you trust him and believe in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what Daniel's written. So Daniel chapter 5, we're all there. Verse 1, let's read. A number of years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver cups that his predecessor, um, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now Belshazzar exemplifies this arrogant party philosophy that was so prevalent, I believe, in our day as well. The end and the goal of life is to provide satisfaction and pleasure for the body. We see that today. Today it's all about what makes me feel good, what I enjoy, who cares if it harms anybody else, but it's all about how I'm feeling right now. If I want to do it, I'm going to do it, regardless of the consequences. That is what we see here with Belshazzar, wanting to have a good time, wanting to make sure everybody else is having a good time as well. No expense was too great. He did everything he could, even that which was deemed ungodly. Wealthy enough to throw a feast for a thousand of political leaders, archaeologists who dug up around the Babylonians, so they they found banquet rooms that would hold over 10,000 people. They knew how to throw throw parties. These feasts were traditionally wild, unrestrained, um, 
And when I say unrestrained, I mean anything goes. Please understand, this is where the sermon could get to beyond our rating, so we stop there, okay? But as an adult, your mind can probably, you know, sit there and say, ooh, yeah, take Mardi Gras, multiply that ten times, worse. That's how bad this party was. He had wives, plural, concubines, plural, and all these women in there. So there was a lot of things that were taking place that should not be taking place. Not only was he prideful and a partier, but he was sacrilegious as well. Did you see what he did? He said when the party reached its basically peak of drunkenness, and they're all just acting incredibly stupid, he called for the temple goblets. In other words, they went to God's temple and they pulled out that which they had taken from the temple and they brought it into his party. Things that were set aside to honor the Lord that had been captured and taken to Babylon, they pulled those religious articles, those sacred things, and brought them into the party. It was the ultimate in arrogance and pride. He is basically insensitive to the demands of God's and the feeling of God's people that, oh, this is probably going to upset people that I'm using there, these Hebrew people, their goblets, their, their cups, and their instruments that were used in worship for my party. He's basically placing himself above God and really just thumbing his nose at God. And they were used to honor his gods. The gods of gold and silver and wood and stone and bronze and iron. He did what kings normally didn't do. He drank in front of his people. Kings normally didn't do that. And he got drunk in front of his people, which you didn't do that either. He set the example of drunkenness and sensuality and revelry. Sensual, materialistic, idolatrous. He didn't hesitate to blaspheme and to ridicule to make fun of God. Didn't hesitate at all. His philosophy, again, was materialism. His gods were idols. His goal in life was to enjoy everything that gave him pleasure. That's what he worshipped. Now, behind the city walls, within the palace, the king partied like there was no tomorrow. Live for today was the philosophy, right? Outside the city walls was an incredible army. Here's our first point we need to remember. God sees our sin. Church, listen carefully. God sees our sin. You can't hide it. He thought he's in the palace walls, his army that's ready to come in and wanting to defeat him, his enemy. He's sitting there thinking, they can't see what I'm doing. We're just going to party up. Who cares, right? Here's the thing. It didn't matter if they saw it or not. God saw it. And no matter what we try to hide from people, which we're pretty good at, you know, we do it really good, especially church people, Right? We come in Sunday mornings looking pretty clean and cut, and it's like, yeah, but if you only knew what I did yesterday, that's the amazing thing about this church and any churches is God's grace, right? Do any of us deserve the love of God? No. But he gives it to us. And we come to this church building, imperfect people. You've heard me say it before. We're like one of my favorite Christmas movies, okay, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We're like the island of misfit toys, aren't we? We're broken. We're different. We mess up, we make mistakes, but you know what? We come together and worship an almighty God. And I don't expect anybody that walks in the door to come in here to worship. I do not expect you to be perfect because I am not perfect. I don't expect you to be sinless because I'm not sinless. We're all sinners. But we're saved by the grace of God. Now his saints, now his children, we come and worship him. In our imperfection, we come and worship a perfect God. 
That's what I love about the church. Nobody asked you to be perfect before you walked in these doors today. And we never will. You may be struggling with a certain sin and you're afraid you're going to be judged by what you've done or what you did in your past and you're so nervous sitting here thinking, I feel so shamed, I feel so guilty, I feel so wrong. If they only knew what I did, and I'd sit here and say this, only God knows what you did and God will forgive you just as he's forgiven me. And we'll worship him together, amen? Let's read on verse 5. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear. His legs gave away beneath him. Now this is what I'm talking about when God crashed a party. Okay? Picture this scene. That slave who had just been sent to get the holy vessels from the temple comes back in. The dancing stops as they look at the king who is now filling up his cup from the temple with more wine. The musicians probably put down their instruments. The house lights get turned up. Belshazzar is standing in front of everybody. He takes the goblet, fills it with his private wine, and then sort of mocking everything that ever God stood for, he takes a drink, and with arrogance, he just probably lets it dribble down his beard and just laughs as if it's no big deal. And everybody sort of looks around like, oh, yeah. And they all start partying and it kicks off even more because the king has sort of set the tone for an ungodliness. But now there's an interruption to all that. Because up on the wall, if you can imagine, a huge hand just appears and it starts writing different things, scribing on the wall these letters, these words. And it was one of those great party tricks, right, that gets everybody's attention. But this was no trick. It was the hand of God being seen for everyone to notice something's going on. Something's going down. I don't know if anybody's ever kept record of the shortest period it took for somebody to sober up. But here it is. Okay. This drunken king suddenly became sober. His face turned white. His knees began to knock. And it says his legs went out from under him. Some translations in Hebrew say that he basically lost control of his bowels. Okay? There was a paralyzing fear that took place. And maybe you've probably heard that phrase or the expression before, hey, the handwriting's on the wall. This is where it came from. The handwriting on the wall, meaning... Hello, do you not see what's taking place here today? It's a way of warning of impending judgment, right? King Belshazzar turned his back on God long, too long, and too often. For him, God didn't even uh, really punish him. So why should he worship him? God's never stopped me before, so why should I stop? I'll just keep living the way I'm living. God's never interrupted my life before. And he continued his ungodly intentions. And it wasn't that he was an evil king. He just, told to, he just tried to lead without the help of God. Pastor Fritz said this, Be very careful not to misread the silence of heaven after you've sinned, to think that somehow, because you were not struck by lightning, you can get away with your sin before God. Always remember, slow justice is not no justice, but a gracious display of God's patience. Let's read on, verse 7. 
The king shouted for the enchanters, the astrologers, the fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read the writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor. You'll have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed. His face turned pale and now his nobles too were shaken. Now all the people he brought in to help him translate this, now they're fearful. The king promises honor, I'm going to dress you in purple. He promises wealth, I'll give you a gold chain. He promises prominence in his kingdom. You'll be the third in power because there's my dad who's off ruling in another part of this land right now. And I've got this place. I'm number two. So you'd be number three. How would you like this position? But once again, we find a king in trouble and no one can help him. Look at verse 9. It sort of sums up. The king grew even more alarmed. His face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. Let me go back to point one that I made earlier. God sees our sin. If you're taking notes today, number one is God sees our sin. Here's number two. God confronts our sin, and we should be fearful. We should be trembling. God sees our sin. God confronts our sin. Look at verse 10. When the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There's a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight understanding and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, has exceptional ability, is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the, what the meaning is, what the writing means. Now, the queen, most likely Belshazzar's mother, enters quickly. Mom to the rescue, right? She recalls a man who's now retired. He's much older. He's probably in his 80s, close to it. But he's a godly man, Daniel. Let's pause for a second here. When others look at us, do they see us as having the Spirit of God within us? If this was taking place in our day, would the queen mother have come out and said, I know of somebody who is godly, who has insight. Would that have been you? Would you have that kind of reputation that when trouble rises, that a man of God or a woman of God is in need, who can speak truth and peace, they would call you in? I hope that would be said yes of all of us. I hope that's the kind of reputation that we have, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that God's Spirit resides in us. And when people need help, when they need guidance, they're coming to you. So many times I hear young people or high school students, they choose not to go with the crowd, right? And so they, well, I'm not going to go to that party. I'm not going to partake in that thing. I'm not going to look at that. And it's like, I feel like I'm so alone because I'm not doing what everybody else is doing. But you know what? Do you know who your friends come to when they're in trouble? You. Because you've chosen to live a godly life. And everybody knows that when you're in trouble, you find somebody who you can trust to help. You will be that person. You may not be the party, or you may not be the one that goes with the crowd, but you've set yourself apart as somebody who's different. And don't look at it as different as a negative thing. Think of it as an awesome thing. You are unique as God's creation, setting yourself apart. That's called holiness. That's what we're called to is holiness. And when your friends are seeking help, who do they come to? 
What an honor. Instead of looking for the party person, they're looking for the holy person for help. Well, you may not get the call when they're going to do something Saturday night, but on Monday morning when they're hurting, you get the call. That's what happened with Daniel. Romans 5, 5 says, Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. God has given the believer of Jesus Christ his very spirit. If you've confessed your sins to God and you've asked the Lord to be your life, you've been giving given new life in Jesus Christ. Let's read on, verse 13. So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king asked him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles, brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you, and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and chanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they can't. I'm told that you can give interpretation, solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you'll be clothed in purple robes with honor. You'll be given a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel was now well in his 80s, around there. He'd been through so many experiences as the prime minister of Babylon, served under five Babylonian kings up to this point in time in his life, and yet his life had remained untainted by the Babylonian culture. He remained true and strong to God. Through it all, he made that deep devotion to God. Take note, the world changes. God does not. The world changes. God does not. And devotion to God means I'm not going to change with the world's fashions, but I will fashion myself after God. Daniel answered in verse 17. He said, keep your gifts or give them to somebody else. I don't care. But I'll tell you what the writing means. Now, as you seek to live for Christ in this life, you will inevitably become face-to-face with temptations. All of us will. There will be temptations to give up your convictions for what you believe as a disciple of Jesus Christ. People will try to confront you and tempt you to go the other way. You see the wealthy, you see the influential may sometimes make you promises that if you only do what they do or what they ask, they'll give you this, they'll give you that. I'm telling you, the larger the influence, it seems like the greater the pressure, right? But being under the pressure of an ungodly influence is a very difficult place to be. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, Am I now trying to win the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I've got, a, I've got an audience of one, God. I can try to please man or I can please God. I choose to please God. That's what Paul said. Daniel had that same spirit within him. I choose to please God. My approval rating is not for you, O king. Keep your stuff. I'll give you the answer. Here's what it means. And he went on to give him the story. Look at verse, uh, let's go here, verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great, the people of all races, nations, and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill. He spared those he wanted to spare. 
He honored those he wanted to honor. He disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Isn't that incredible courage? The kind of courage to to look at the king and, and say, oh man, this is the way they used to be. I mean, these kings, they thought they could do anything and they were brought to their knees. Hashtag Nebuchadnezzar, right? And with courage, he faces them. I heard this story. And this story, is it seemed to be a great story about courage when I first started reading it. See, it, was a, it took place on, on an evening outside a small town. A fire started inside a local chemical plant. And before long, it exploded into these incredible flames. An alarm went off to the fire departments miles around. All these fire departments are coming in trying to fight the fire. Over an hour, they kept at it, they kept at it. The chemical company president approached the fire chief and said, listen, oh, I've got a lot of secret formulas. They're in a vault at the center of the plant. He goes, they, they have to be saved. Put, your, put your, all your water under that spot. I, I will give $50,000 to whichever engine, whichever department can get in there and get that fire out where my secret plans are and all my formulas and save it. Well, as soon as the chief heard this, he ordered the firemen to strengthen their attack on that blaze. And after two more hours of attacking uh, that blaze in that certain spot, the flames were still high. And the company president offered $100,000 to the engine company that could bring out the company's secret files. And from the distance, another long siren, another, another fire crew was coming in. And another fire truck came in the side. It was a local volunteer fire company. But this local vo- volunteer fire company uh, was entirely of men over the age of 65. And to everyone's announcement, this little fire engine raced, raced right through into the chemical plant where the flames were, drove straight into the middle of the inferno. And in the distance, the other firemen watched as these old-timers hopped out of their fire trucks and started putting the fire out with such an incredible effort like nobody's ever seen before. I mean, these guys, I mean, they were literally it's like almost as they were on fire trying to put out the fire, right? And after an hour of intense fighting, the volunteer company had extinguished the fire. They saved the secret formulas. And joyous, the chemical company president announced that he would double the reward to $200,000. He walked over to personally thank each of those men. And after thanking the old men individually, the president asked the group what they planned to do with the reward money. And the fire truck driver of that engine looked him in the eye and said, the first thing we're going to do is replace the brakes on this vehicle. I mean, we just <laughs> didn't mean to stop. We tried to stop. Well, I thought it was a great story of courage until I read the end, and I thought that's... But isn't that the way it should be sometimes? Almost like a reckless abandonment for what's ahead of us as we go charging in for Jesus Christ into the midst of the fire to put it out, right? Belshazzar knew the story well. He had heard of the past of what had happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 20. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he brought down from his royal throne and was stripped of his glory. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from human society. We talked about this last week. Given the mind of a wild animal. Lived among the wild donkeys. Ate like grass like a cow. He was drenched in the dew of heaven. He learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. And when you think about this, Daniel is saying, have you not learned from history, O king? Have you not learned 
verse 22. You are his successor. Oh, Belshazzar. This is where he gets really courageous. And you knew this, yet you've not humbled yourself. Wow. Verse 23. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven. You've heard, you've had these cups from the temple brought before you. You and your nobles, your wives, concubines, you've been drinking wine while praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear. No, they don't know anything at all. But you've not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God sent this hand to write the message. That was God's hand. Listen, he goes, verse 25. This is the message that was written many, 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 tekel, parson. That's what these words mean. Many means numbered. God's numbered the days of your reign, brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed in the balances and you've not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom's been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Simple translation. The king, you're going to die. Your kingdom's going to be divided. End of story. Wow. Talking about a party coming to a sudden end. Daniel faithfully delivers the news. God gave him that courage, knowing that I'm going to give you some really bad news. You're not going to like it. But I must be honest, truthful, full of integrity, and strong and courageous, right? Church, let me go back and review those points. God sees our sin. He sees our sin. He sees everything we do. He confronts our sin. He comes to us and says, you know you're wrong, and we should tremble. We should be nervous. We should be scared of a holy God looking at our sinful lives. But here's number three. God exposes our sin, and we are found wanting. We're found wanting. And here's the crazy thing. King Belshazzar never humbled himself. He's like, oh, okay. Thanks for the interpretation. I think I got to get you a robe or something, right? And a gold necklace. And you are now third in command. Congratulations. That's it? He refused to believe that there was anybody above him. Verse 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain, and it was hung around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler of the kingdom. That very night... Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took the kingdom of at the age of 62. During the night, the enemy, basically, they took the river, the Euphrates that was flowing into the kingdom. They diverted the water so they could slip underneath the walls. As that water level went down, they went down underneath. They came in, opened up the gates, and the army came in and basically ransacked the kingdom. God deals with our sin. He sees it. He confronts it. And he deals with it. You know, when our children were younger, we dealt with disobedience with multiple means, right? Um, one of those means was a paddle. You know what's amazing is this, this old school paddle still is amongst all of our ping pong paddles downstairs at our ping pong table. And I found this down there the other day. I'm thinking, we got all these great paddles. This is, this is old school. And um, it's even missing the one side. And it's still down there. And um, somebody was over the other day, and they said, hey, what is, what's this written on here? I said, oh, well, this was actually not used for ping pong, but I guess they still play with it. Um, this was for our sons when we disciplined them. You spanked them? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did timeout and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes, 
You know, what's that saying? Spoil the rod or something. Spare the rod, spoil the child, something like that, right? Well, anyway, we wrote on here, forgot, didn't hear, didn't know. Because that was usually the excuse. Oh, well, I forgot. Oh, I didn't hear you. I didn't know. Oh, well, let me, maybe you'll, maybe you'll remember. And maybe you'll hear me and maybe you will know the next time, right? Love you, sons. We don't use this anymore except to play ping pong with, right? They knew, they heard, they, you know. But when we're younger, even when we're younger in our faith, children in our faith, sometimes we're not, in, we're not as mature as we need to be and we don't do what we ought to do and we need to be quickly disciplined and reminded. And that's what God says. God says, listen, did you really forget that I'm God? Did, did you not hear my words? Did you not know? And we are so proud sometimes as people to think that God won't discipline us, that he won't deal with our sin. God deals with our sin. God deals with our sin. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. That should scare us. We should tremble, right? Paul said in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth every, and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every knee will bow before God. Every knee. No one's excluded on this one. And we will have to deal with our sin, with a mighty God, right? But the amazing thing is, we have an all-powerful, all-knowing God who will one day bring every dark thing into light and judge sin and God is strongly warning us right now, just as he did then, that we'll be judged by him. But here's the good news. Church, here's the good news. Paul goes on to tell us that the reason why God so strongly is judging us is because he so strongly loves us. God demonstrated the extent of his love at the cross. He says, yes, I'm going to judge you. Yes, I can't stand sin. Yes, I will expose that sin and I will deal with that sin, but I'm doing it through the love of my son, Jesus Christ. And he let his son die on the cross to take our punishment. Oh, I deserve this, right? But Jesus says, I'll step in for you and I'll take that punishment if you just place your faith in me. The scriptures tell us the real glory of the cross is that it does more than just warn us of sin's penalty. It saves us from its penalty. The sacrifice of Jesus blots out the handwriting of condemnation that's been written across all of our lives. If we will simply confess our sins and repent. When we ask for forgiveness and turn away from our our ways, God forgives. He steps in. What a wonderful thing to know. That despite all of our sin, God forgives us. What a joy it is to know that God's promise given to us in Romans 8, 1, therefore now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today a lot of people, including um, a lot of Christians to even do this too, we make the same mistake that Belshazzar was making. Uh, they see the handwriting on the wall. They know it, but they don't do anything about it. They refuse to accept it. I invite you today to do something with it. 
it was, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. It was maybe seven years ago, six years ago. Phil will be able to help me on this one in a second when I tell him what happened. Uh, Joy might be able to help me with this one as well. And Sharon might be able to help me with this as well. We were at the school, the church service, and I was preaching through the book of Daniel. I've not preached on this chapter since that day. Because on that day, Phil, your father was sitting in church with us. And I just started the sermon. I don't even think I was halfway through. And Phil's father took his last breath and just fell forward. I think, Joy, you were sitting in front or Sharon or two. We had, it was amazing that a couple of nurses were sitting right there. And I, I think, I can't remember who else was sitting there, was right there to come to his aid. The ambulance came. We just told the church, just, just pray right where you're at. Just, just where you're at right now, just pray. And they took Phil's father to the hospital and he was okay. But it was that, they say it's that breath that you've heard somebody, maybe they have a heart attack. It's, 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 it's indistinguishable, indistinguishable, the kind of breath it is. The breath they take, you know that was their last breath. But he survived. Here we were with my notes and I was like, got done. Everybody got done praying. They took them off the ambulance and we still had about 15, 20 minutes left in service. I was like... Did we not just see the handwriting on the wall? We lived that message that day. It was like God was saying, listen, your last breath might be right now. Do you not see the handwriting on the wall? This could be your last day. This could be your last breath. Are you ready to face me? Are you ready to come before the throne of heaven? Have you confessed your sins to holy God? Have you placed your life into the hands of an almighty God? I'll never forget that day, Phil. You probably won't either. And some of the church, those of you who were worshiping with us six, seven years ago, you'll never forget that day either. But that day has always reminded me, I don't know when Christ is coming back, and I don't know when I'm going to die. I do know this, it's going to happen someday. And I'd be so proud and arrogant to think that I could just keep on living and do whatever I want to do with, with no excuses or do it flippantly as if it doesn't matter. Every breath matters, every day matters. Every moment matters. And if I've not confessed to a holy God, what am I doing? I want to encourage you, church. The handwriting's on the wall. Do you know this holy God? Do not let your pride or arrogance get in the way. Confess your sins to a holy God. And if you are sitting here today saying, hey, I'm there, Rex. I've confessed my sins to Holy God. I'm so excited to be a part of this church. I'm so excited to be a part of God's family. I'd say, then with the courage of Daniel, go tell somebody else. With the courage of Daniel, go tell somebody else that's partying it up right now, that they're just living whatever they want to live for themselves. Go love on them. You don't have to convince them to change their lifestyle. Just share the love of God with them. Because you care. Because you care. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. I thank you, Lord, for the amazing God that you are and how you love us so much. God, I think of this, this whole story with Daniel. and Not that we write him off because he's in his 80s, but here he comes showing us young people how to do it with courage. Thank you, God, for his example. Thank you, God, that he stood before a king that could chop his head off and yet he was so bold to say, King, 
You got it all wrong. There's a God who loves you. Wake up. The handwriting's on the wall. God, today we need to remember we can't hide our sin from you. You see it. You confront it and you're going to deal with it. So God, we want to deal with it this morning. We want to confess it to you. Forgive us, Lord, of our arrogance. Forgive us of of our pride. Forgive us of the sins that we've committed that we don't even want to say out loud because it's so embarrassing. Forgive us. God, help us to live a life that honors you. God, for those of us in here today that are like, God, I'm so excited to be a part of this church. I'm so excited about what I'm learning in my small group or my Bible study. God, give us the courage and the strength to go love on those that are dealing with a lot of sin right now. Not, we're not judging them. That, that's your job. We just see where they're at. We know they can be in a better place. Because we love them, we want to tell them the truth. We want to just keep loving on them. God, I thank you for this church. Continue to speak to us, Lord, as we sing to you. In that precious name we pray. Amen.